This episode of Upstream in Perspective is brought to you by IHS Markets Upstream Insight. Our team of industry experts analyze the interplay of geopolitical structures, government priorities, corporate strategies, and global markets and technologies to deliver forward-looking solutions that lead to more informed and efficient decisions. These solutions are available via recurring reports, interactive analytics, robust data sets, and bespoke engagements with experts. Learn more about our offerings at www.ihsmarket.com energy. Welcome to Upstream and Perspective. I'm one of your hosts, Jessica Nelson. I'm here with Hill Vaden. Hill, how are you today? Doing well. How are you, Jessica? I'm doing good. It's uh, it's a Friday for us, so that's always a great start, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so today, I, I think it's safe to say that these days you cannot really talk about the energy industry without including the financial underpinning that that we depend on. Um, but the industry has been in a volatile position the last few months. Investors are cautious. Oil price alone isn't enough to move the markets anymore. You have geopolitics, trade wars, low carbon movements, and, and a lot more that are impacting the markets, right? Yeah. So today... Um, We'll get into that with our experts. So joining us are Kevin Roy, a lead analyst from our financial services advisory team, and Dan Pratt from our companies and transactions analysis team is back with us too. Uh, thanks both for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So Kevin, I think we'd like to start with you um, and talk a little bit about some recent news. Uh, last week, the equity research shop Redburn published a report to clients where it downgraded all the energy majors, citing valuation concerns on the idea that oil demand was not going to be as high as once expected. And we've seen a lot of other media reports of investor concerns and bankruptcies, more specific to North America operators' ability to generate financial returns and cash from unconventional oil and gas development. Are you noticing this news play out in actual investor commitments to these company shares? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, you know, what I would say is um, not only are we witnessing that, um, but it's really accelerated over the last 18 or months or so, uh, what had already been probably a 10-year trend of, you know, institutional investors, investors that represent, you know, the largest ownership of publicly traded energy companies uh, who are reducing uh, what we call exposure to not only the energy sector, uh, so whether that's upstream, midstream, or downstream, but specifically North American E&P companies. Uh, and for that group, the exit or the reduction of exposure has really accelerated over the last uh, you know, couple of quarters. So the trend you're saying is about 10 years old, um, but, but the acceleration is, is more recent and, and isn't necessarily tied directly to that 2015 price collapse? Yeah, it's, it's you know, the way we kind of think about it when we talk to, to our clients, um, Ten years ago, the energy sector represented 10%, a little over 10% of the S&P 500 index. Fast forward to today, and the S&P 500 represents less than 5% of the S&P 500 index. So that's that's a pretty dramatic reduction uh, of you know the energy sector's presence. And, you know, certainly, you know, a catalyst would have been the 2015 collapse, but it's more about investor decision to allocate capital to a sector that has not done a very good job of returning capital to shareholders or just really demonstrating a return on their invested capital, meaning, you know, the dollars that they 
invest in drilling for a well and earning a return on that capital that they deployed for that well. Well, and then you you mentioned the index. I think last month was the first time in almost 100 years that Exxon fell out of the top 10 within the S&P 500 index. So, so this is hitting all, you know, the, the, the small North American EMPs, but it's moving all the way up to, to the large integrates too. Yeah, and, and, and you know, that that is shocking, right? Uh, particularly for a company the size of, of, of Exxon. And, you know, I would add there's, there's another dynamic at play here in the broader equity markets in that, you know, for us who, who invest in 401ks and and we give our money to call it a Fidelity or Vanguard. Fidelity is what we call an active investor. So when I was talking earlier about, you know, investors really exiting the space, what I was talking about were these active institutional investors who have portfolio managers and analysts who make decisions on, you know, what company shares that they buy. And and that group of investors in the market are really the ones who are, are reducing exposure to energy companies and, and EMP companies. But what, what has also been happening in the broader markets is those active investors are losing their own investors or clients, you know, you and me and everyone else, because we're rotating our money to the vanguards of the world. And vanguard is what we call a passive investor, meaning they look at an index like the S&P 500 and they allocate the money that they have to invest based on the weighting that we're talking about. So while that's happening, the passive owners of energy companies is actually increasing. But on it's not increasing yeah, on a relative active. So, so, so if, if the index is, if the passive is 5% to, to match the index, then, then the active is 1 to 4%. Correct. So, I mean, Dan, sitting kind of from where you're sitting and, you know, analyzing your, your team has been analyzing these companies for, for some 20 plus years. Uh, this obviously the Exxon falling out of the S&P 500 is or the top 10 falling out of the top 10 of the S&P 500 is the first is is new. How has this re- resembled or how does this feel different than, than prior? You know, this is a cyclical industry industry, you know, energy falls out of favor, you know, almost predictably every, you know, several years or decades. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just to go back to Kevin's point, I mean, the, the, the trend, the sector rotation out of energy is an even longer term than that. If you go back to the 90s, uh, you know, uh, energy was about 15% of the S&P and the decade before that it was 20, 25%. So this has been a, a long-term trend and, and, it, and it creates tremendous pressure uh, in terms of competition for capital. Uh, and so I, that's where, you know, how do companies not only compete for, uh, for capital within these other sectors, but if their pie or their share of that capital is shrinking, how do they compete with their peers uh, for that capital and how do they differentiate themselves? How do they get their story out to investors? So it's certainly been trickling down and put a lot of pressure in terms of their business models uh, uh, going, 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 going forward. Um, so if you look at it, uh, you know, just overall, if you bring it kind of more to what we've seen here recently, um, if you look at the the share performance, you know the integrateds have actually you know uh, done a little bit better. They're down about ten percent over the last twelve months, but the EMPs are down kind of forty to sixty percent. Um, so you know, sorry, is it, is the integrated outperformance? Would you say that's more tied to to yield? Some of these companies are generating you know four or five percent dividend yield, 
or is it just the value uh, of refining and marketing within their uh, integrated operations or a combination of both? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both, right? The integrated business model allows you to, to sustain your profitability a little bit better through the peaks and valleys. But I do think, you know, these guys have a business model set up for what investors are looking for today in terms of return of capital, higher dividends, uh, et cetera. So the business model uh, in a downturn supports them. Uh, but in terms of why it feels a little bit different this time, Hill, I think in the past kind of boom and bust cycles, it's been more about are we going to have uh, enough oil or is there too much oil uh, compared to the future demand uh, for fossil fuels? This time is very much a question of is that demand going to be there, right? You know, so short term, we have these supply uh, concerns, but longer term, if you look at what's happening in terms of uh, fears around um, uh, peak oil demand, uh, decarbonization, the whole energy transition, I th there feels to be some real concern about uh, what level of demand we're going to see in the future for fossil fuels. So that, what to me feels a little bit different this time. With some of those demand concerns, conceivably, um, would you know almost bias positively some of the the gas weighted portfolios. I know gas is obviously a fossil fuel, but but it's a lower carbon fossil fuel. I mean, or from either of y'all's perspective, does gas a gas biased operator tend to get more credit in this market? Yeah, no, look, I, I, I think Dan will, will provide a little bit more specific detail, but, you know, as I think about it, and, and my team, we work with over 800 publicly traded companies across every major sector. And, and as I think about any company and its ability to uh, earn a, you know, good valuation in the market, a fair valuation or premium valuation, meaning they trade at a higher multiple than, than their competitors. It's, it's about their ability to operate and deliver on what they're telling the market. So certainly there, there are always going to be companies in any sector that are really good operators that are achieving fair valuation and, and really going against the trend that we're talking about. And, you know, whether that's a mix of, you know, gas versus oil or a pure gas player, you know, certainly that could be the case. And I think, as we all know, you know, where your where your wells are located are, are probably the, the, the biggest driver. Um, but, you know, you could have a great portfolio of, of wells, but be a terrible operator and you're not going to earn that investor trust. <laughs> right. I won't ask you to name any names. <laughs> but there is a bit of a dilemma there on the gas side, as you mentioned, though, Hill, right? I mean, you know, obviously, you know, the carbon footprint is more attractive. Uh, there's certainly an abundance of gas uh, globally. Uh, but the question is, you know, how do you make money off of the gas, right? Because gas prices are low, so low, particularly in North America, uh, and there's so much supply in terms of, you know, creating some type of... Uh, uh, a bullish uh, outlook in terms of gas prices is is, is difficult. So, uh, you know, the transition to gas makes a lot of sense from an environmental standpoint, but the big challenge for a lot of these guys is how to make money off of it. Sure. Well, in some respects, the gas operators ha have, you know, some experience here, right? Because when, in 08, 09, when, when gas blew up and, you know, whenever it was, 10 or $12 in MCF, and then, you know, eventually fell down to two or three, the, Many of them, and I remember when UG first came out with the Eagleford uh, or first announced the Eagleford, everybody makes these plays. We're, we're getting out of gas and into oil because that was going to be, you know, a, a better place to, to make money. Have we, do, 
you know, the, the, the gas companies have a bit of a blueprint for, for navigating uh, when you're out of favor. Are we seeing any of that within their operations or, or is the gas price so low that, that even though you've got a blueprint to, to, to navigate these storms, it, it's, it's more of a survival mentality than an outperform mentality? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the blueprint that we saw uh, back in the in the gas boom was really a transition to oil, right? So you took what you've learned in the unconventional gas, and a lot of these companies transitioned. You mentioned EOG, right? So you know they 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 kind of transitioned uh, what they were doing on the gas side, XTO and others, uh, and started taking that 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 unconventional uh, learnings, the technology, and transferring that to oil. I think the question going forward from here. Is what's the next transition point for these for the for the oil weighted guys? Uh, you know, if you look out uh, going forward, you know we don't see a whole lot of incubation of new plays these days. Um, and so, if you're an operator in the Permian, you have to really have a good understanding or a good outlook of you know what is the life cycle of this play? When is it going to peak? And what are my options beyond the Permian, so to speak? And so, really, outside of any I would say significant technology shift or step change in technology. Where companies can, you know, increase the recoveries that we've seen thus far in these plays. I think, you know, over the next kind of five to eight years or so, you got to start thinking about what's next. How do we, how do we move from, from, from where we are today in, in the oil unconventional and primarily the Permian to something beyond that? Because that's what a lot of the gas guys did. They went from unconventional gas and shifted to, 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 to unconventional oil. Okay, so Kevin, kind of, you know, just piggybacking on some of that conversation, you know, we, we talked about active funds and passive funds in terms of uh, institutional money with, you know, some of the uh, activist investors, whether that be Carl Icahn or others, given that the sector is out of favor and oftentimes that, that attracts the attention of these activists. Are you seeing more attention or any of these guys moving? I know I know there are some instances, Elliot and Act and Icon, that have actually taken positions. Is there more interest in we're seeing perhaps showing up in, in, in the stocks? Yeah, that, that is actually one of the very interesting trends uh, that has um, really increased for the sector recently as it relates to activist investors who are starting to look at this sector to identify, you know, companies that, you know, as I talked about earlier, that have very good assets, right? Good location, good wells, but are poor operators. And, and you know, that that's that is their MO, right? That's what they do. They look for companies that have good assets, bad managers, bad management teams, and they go and they accumulate uh, very large positions in those companies, um, and then affect change. And affecting change means they want a board seat, they want to take over the company, uh, or they want to put the company up for sale. So as we as we look at uh, the number of campaigns that have happened in this space, it really started to accelerate last year. And, you know, we continue to see that happen this year. And, you know, I think what's really important, um, you know, for these companies is that the activists are winning, and they're winning by either getting that board seat, or they're winning uh, by uh, you know making them change their strategy, whether that's to diversify or sell assets or sell the company. Uh, but it, it's it's been a notable trend because you know historically this has not been an industry that has had a lot of activists, uh, only you know really because of the complexities around uh, you know running an energy company and understanding. Um, how to you know how to make money and, and how to find 
uh, you know, new uh, resources. And, and Kevin, and, and just to, you know, because really, in, in, in many instances, the valuations are, are kind of compelling, right? If we look at valuation multiples uh, currently, whether you're looking at, you know, kind of uh, earning uh, price to cash flow, price to earnings, I mean, price to cash flow for some of these guys are one to two times cash flow. So, you know, we kind of look at the current uh, evaluation multiples as kind of crisis level multiples, multiples we saw when oil where it was $30, $35 a barrel. So the valuations seem to be compelling, uh, but because of all the issues we've discussed thus far, you know, investors aren't, aren't, aren't necessarily flocking to the sector, right? So, you know, we had activism move in to try to capture some of that valuation uplift, but from a broader perspective, you know, what have we seen with value investors uh, and when, what, what might we expect to see? Yeah, you know, just a, qu a quick comment about valuations and, and, you know, some companies looking attractive. What's interesting is the, really the, the number one indicator or uh, signal for an activist to target a company is price performance, relative price performance. So how is that company's stock performed relative to its competitors or, you know, what we also call peers? And so when you have a company that has really underperformed and their stock has underperformed those peers, you know, that's the first screen these investors look at, these activist investors. And then, you know, they go down to the next level, which is what you're talking about. All right, what do the fundamentals of the company look like? Do they generate free cash flow? Where, where are they positioned uh, and, you know, in, in what shale region or whatever the case may be? And, and they start to do their analysis, and then they look at the performance of the management team, and then so on and so on. So, you know, you know that said, when you when you think about the traditional value investor, right? Again, remember, Fidelity is this active investor who has portfolio managers who do similar screens, and they look for companies who are trading at a discount relative to uh, the sector, and, and, and those that are trading below that. We, we call them, you know, value type companies. Um, what's happening is those investors are not rotating into the sector today. And it goes back to the themes that we've been talking about, which is, you know, they want a balance today in terms of return to them. And that balance is growth, growth in production. It's also a return of capital either via a dividend payment, which, you know, is yield, or through buybacks, so buying back their stock. And, and that's really the shift that the industry is, is having a hard time making, uh, particularly given, you know, just kind of the pricing environment. But, you know, back in the day, what we would see through the different cycles is, you know, when you're at, you know, really high oil price, you have growth investors who come and they invest in the sector. And then, you know, price collapse, the growth investors get out and they're selling their shares to the value investors. And that dynamic is what really has changed for the sector. Yeah. The value investors are selling and the growth investors are selling. Yeah. So I think what ultimately happens, and particularly with North, with the North American independent, I think they're the you know, executive teams are really challenged at the moment to figure out, you know, what do they do? You know, and I think you have to. You know, there's got to be a multiple of options that, that companies are looking through. Do you know, do you kind of just hunker down and focus on cost? And as Kevin said, try to bring your returns up and and, uh, you know, kind of 
uh, you know, conquer through this period. I hope sentiment changes in the future or prices improve. But then you got to ask, do I have the asset base for that? Do I have the financial wherewithal to do that? Do my time horizon uh, for that? Do my investors have that time, same time horizon? Do I want to do something more radical to, to change my story, to differentiate myself? Do I want to look, uh, do some of these companies turn back internationally? Do they try to diversify their, uh, their, their, their asset base? Do they go private? You know, so I think, you know, all these options now become, um, you know, I think something that companies are really struggling. Where do we go from here if we're not attracting some of the traditional investors we used to attract at these valuation multiples? What can we do to kind of change our story? And I think it's a big dilemma that they're really kind of, I don't think they figured out yet, but they're going to have to. Yeah, and it would seem that you'd want to, you know, just, this would favor the the, the active management of these companies that on the kind of the cliche that that hope is not a strategy that they're just kind of hunkering down and waiting for things to get better you know might work but but it might not work i mean kevin from the investor side of things it is i'm assuming that i mean i know that you spend a lot of time with the investor relations teams at these companies um do, do they seem to be communicating to, to you um, you know, intentions of plans or, or you know, looking to, to you for kind of guidance uh, on, you know, how to navigate this? They absolutely. And, you know, maybe to kind of put it in perspective, we work with uh, around 50 uh, exploration and production company, uh, publicly traded EMPs and their investor relations teams, you know, to help them understand what's going on in the market, uh, what sentiment is. And, you know, who they should be meeting with when they go on what's called a, a non-deal roadshow where they're meeting these institutional investors or to what's called a self-side conference, which is, you know, they think about the big banks like Morgan Stanley or Barclays who host these companies at a conference either, you know, in New York or Boston or California somewhere. But, you know, it's interesting because I, I think – you know, those companies that have taken more of a balanced approach uh, from a strategy perspective and and started to return capital to shareholders, um, that signals to the market that they're making a commitment, right? And, you know, they, they are actively out there meeting with investors. Uh, but then you have other companies who, who are not in, let's call it not a great position. Um, and as, as Dan kind of mentioned earlier, that that you know are at risk of potentially uh, either being acquired or or forced into bankruptcy, and you know some of those companies are are just you know kind of doing the, the the run and hide approach, right? Let's just let's wait, let's let's get a couple quarters where maybe we uh, have some good results, or maybe the market comes back a little bit, crude comes back a little bit, um, and and then we'll go out, and, and you know certainly that's not how we would advise any public company to approach interacting with the market. Um, but, you know, it's tough. It's a very tough environment. Yeah. And, and I, earlier I talked about this other dynamic at play, which is where active investors are losing capital to these passive uh, investors like Vanguard. And, and that makes it even more difficult because the pool of capital that they are trying to target and meet with when they go on these, these conferences or non-deal roadshows, is getting smaller and smaller, which means it's more competitive. So they, they really have to be an attractive investment for these active managers for them to deploy their capital to, to their, their shares. Are you seeing any crowded names? I mean, I, I, 
mean, if we if we think about just this week, and I know that one week does not a trend make, but but just this week that there was some relative outperformance for, from the energy sector and the financial sector, um, you know, as the stock market was moving different directions, have certain companies or actions by E&P companies led to any sort of crowded investment, or or is it still kind of head scratching on, on what what's the best approach here? Yeah, look, I think it's more of the latter. Um, you know, I, I would say if we think about the most recent public information that we have, there, there are certainly, you know, some companies that have, you know, called buck the trend that we've been talking about where value and growth investors are reducing their, their exposure to the, to the names. Um, some are starting to, to you know, as, as Dan mentioned earlier, you know, the valuations are just they're, – they're, they're too – Discounted, so they're you know attracting some value investors. You know that said, when when you think about institutional uh, investors and and their investment horizon, these more traditional firms like Fidelity, you know the larger names that we all know, they have a longer term approach to this, so they're not going to react necessarily as quickly as some other types of investors uh, in the market like hedge funds who, as you point out, Hill, are, are much quicker to take uh, and deploy capital into a name because of a recent announcement or some news that would be a catalyst for price performance. So those investors are very, very active uh, in, in these names and are really one of the one group of investors that remains kind of uh, call it net buyers uh, of these companies. Okay. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I think there's still, you know, story matters to some degree, as, as Kevin said, right? So if you look at, you know, we, if you look at what we call our, our large North American uh, independence, we've seen some real change, right? We've seen capital discipline. If you look at capital spending relative to the amount of cash flow, you know, as a group, collectively, the EMP sector, uh, we've seen that come down quite a bit. Uh, and, the, and, and, and by and large, the companies are showing capital discipline. We've looked at executive compensation recently. We've seen a significant change in terms of the makeup of executive compensation versus 2015. You know, they're much more aligned with things like returns. Uh, we're starting to see more concern around debt uh, and tying executive compensation uh, to return of capital to shareholder rather than growth, which was the dominant kind of metric back in 2015. But you know, individual stories still matter. If we look at the share price performance of the large North American EMPs, as we categorize them, you know, Hess is the only one out of say you know 15 to 20 or so companies that have positive share price performance in the last 12 months. Well, they're overspending capex, but they have a great story. They got Guyana, which is a great asset. They got a great story to tell the market, and we're seeing some relative outperformance there. Uh, on the gas side, you know, Cabot is outperforming pretty significantly uh, companies like Range and Kana, Southwestern EQT uh, by a pretty wide margin. So there is room to have, you know, if you have a good story to, to tell the market uh, that can attract capital, because if Kevin's right, that competition for capital is getting more and more aggressive. How do you differentiate yourself from a pack of companies that today look very similar in terms of their asset makeup? Very similar in terms of their asset makeup. So, so, so the... The story is more on um, the, the story for differentiation. It sounds like is a combination of, of your your operation. I mean, I guess everybody can say they're going to buy back shares or reduce debts or live within cash flow, which seems to be, you know, kind of the repeated course or the or the first slide on all these investor decks, right? It, is we're going to live within capital this year. 
Hess, you know, you, you mentioned them kind of outperforming. They've got a very distinct, different uh, asset base as a result of uh, Guiana. Um, you know, how much of this really gets into the, the asset and exposure to things that, that others, you know, Cabot on the Marcellus, uh, Hess on the Guiana, that those would seem to be asset stories that, that, that help them differentiate from others who just have, you know, more holes in West Texas to book. I'm sure there's a question there with <laughs> you. No, I, 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 I think it's just, <laughs> I don't know, there's, uh, there's a lot to, to, to take in here and there's, uh, there, there, there are, I suppose, very different stories for each of the operators, um, but, but in some senses that the stories, you know, are, are just different shades of the same until you've got assets can, that can really take your company in a different direction. Yeah, the ultimately, differentiator is going to be your, the, the quality of your asset base, right? Uh, and your ability to to exploit the quality of that asset base and execute on it, right? Um, so, you know, those with higher quality assets are in a better position, you know, either to execute uh, some type of more aggressive strategy or to, you know, hunker down if, if, if that's what they choose to do. I think it's those kind of companies with the, well, the lower quality assets that are going to have, you know, obviously tougher decisions, probably have to make decisions sooner uh, and things that Kevin talked about, you know, consolidation, um, asset sales, uh, and at the extreme part of it, you know, potential bankruptcies, right? You know, the, the one thing I was also going to point out is Hess had an active investor, uh, right. you know, not more than two two years ago who forced them to change their, their business mix, right, and their strategy. And so it's interesting to, to you know, if, in hindsight, to look back at that and hear Dan's comment that, you know, that's the one company that has had a positive price return in the last 12 months. And, and that's what activists do, right? They're that catalyst that goes in and affects change on the company's strategy to, you know, divest certain assets and to focus in certain areas. And it seemingly has, has worked out, right? And, and that activist remains a very large investor uh, of the company. And, you know, Hill, to your question earlier, there there will be more instances of activism in this space at scales like we saw with Hess um, if there isn't the shift in strategy that we, again, have been talking about for the last you know, 25, 30 minutes. Uh, and that's one of, of balance, right? So looking forward you know, to 12 to 15 months, 12, 18 months, uh, it sounds like we, we, we might plan to see more activists. What, what, are, what are some other things uh, that, that, that we should look for? I think ultimately, you know, I think we're going to see some consolidation, right? I think, you know, we haven't talked a lot about what the majors are doing, but, you know, if we look at, you know, the amount of capital that Exxon and Chevron are putting into uh, plays like, 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 like the Permian, um, you know, we see execution risk there for some of the smaller guys. So I would expect to see uh, maybe a pickup in consolidation. Obviously, it's tough in these capital markets. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise me to see, you know, some of these smaller companies getting together to make themselves a more attractive uh, opportunity to, 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 to put quality acreage together to make themselves a more attractive opportunity. So, you know, I think consolidation is probably a part of the story of how we get from here to there. So I would expect to see uh, more of that in the next 12 to 15 months. Uh, again, assuming that, you know, prices kind of stay uh, where, where they are. Um, and companies being forced to uh, to make some of these uh, uh, more radical changes. Same thing. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I would agree with that. And, and you know, I I absolutely agree that there will likely be 
consolidation uh, with the you know smaller mid cap uh, names out there, and then as Dan points out, some of these larger integrateds uh, that have cash uh, on the balance sheet and are positioned to you know to be acquirers. It also is, I think, important for the sector to regain the confidence uh, of of the market of the you know what we call the street. Um, you know when we when we talk to these investors, we call them buy side investors, institutional investors. Um, you know, they're, 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 there's really a crisis of of, of credibility and, and perception for these companies and. These management teams need to regain the confidence of these investors, and they do that by, you know, delivering results. Right? Um, Dan talks about kind of living within uh, cash flows or, or living within what they've communicated from a capex perspective. And you know, I think we recently pre- uh, published a report that you know, by and large, the large cap BNPs in, in North America are holding true to what they committed to and what they communicated to the street as it relates to CapEx uh, through the first half of the year. So uh, if if they continue to deliver, meet expectations uh, for the next, you know, call it four quarters, you know, you may start to see some of these value investors and growth investors, uh, depending on the, the, the story of the company, rotate back into the space. And, and, and that's what they need, right? They, they need that confidence and from the market to continue to to grow and access capital when needed uh, for uh, you know capex this 2019 you mentioned you know expectations uh, you know in terms of the street is 2019 potentially a year of resetting expectations uh, where 2020 becomes more of a year of executing within a new normal or a new set of expectations? I, 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 you know, I, I guess I would agree with that. I, I would say that the the trend, and you know, I mentioned earlier that we talked to these these portfolio managers and analysts, and their views on the management teams and uh, investor relations teams, you know, our clients, uh, really took a hit in eighteen. Mm-hmm. And, and we measure this. We ask them quantitative questions, scaling questions, right? And from seventeen to eighteen, there was a significant drop. And you know the scores that that our clients were getting from these investors. So if, if nothing else, I, I think a win would be uh, a stabilization of the market's view, right? And then you know, as you note, they kind of build on that in 2020 and beyond. Uh, you know, regardless of the price environment, right? Um, that, that's that's something they have to they have to rebuild that that confidence. Uh, with the market. Okay, and then it just sets up the, those management teams and those assets. You're looking for quality and management and quality, quality and assets um, yep. to, to live within that new set of expectations. Yeah, we may never return to that kind of growth-driven uh, uh, investor support, you know, or, or, or maybe quite some time before we ever get back to there. Particularly, again, going back to what we talked about earlier, given the change in terms of the long-term outlook for the industry, you know, uh, focus on returns and uh, capital discipline and the return of capital may be here for quite some time. I wonder how Bree McClendon would respond to this uh, uh, operating environment. <laughs> well, Jessica, you got any questions for, uh, for for the for this group? 
No, I think you guys have really covered quite a bit today. And although I, I, I get what you're saying, Hill, I think you've probably just touched the tip of the iceberg here um, with all of the different um, um, happenings in the industry. But um, I do want to, to transition kind of to a fun question um, that we like to uh, ask all of our our podcast guests. Have a little fun here as we close out the session today. Um, so if you could, uh, Kevin, Dan, tell us if you could sit down for a beer, a soda, lemonade with any one person, historical figure or a current person, who might you pick? Kevin, you that's first. A, that's a loaded <laughs> question. And, you know, it's funny. It's funny you ask that because uh, Dan Jurgen, I think I asked that question to Lord Brown the other day at, at, at our office at a Connected Loan. You know, I, I don't know. I, I would say just part of me, given where our world is today, sitting down with someone like Abe Lincoln um, to listen to and, and understand how in, in that type of environment someone could really just lead and 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 set you know this country up for sure uh, to the greatness that it has become um, and and getting through a time like that um, and not to say that we're we're in a similar situation but uh, there's certainly uh, a lot going on um, so I think you know having a, a beer with him would be uh, very interesting to get his perspective. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna piggyback on what Hill said to some degree. I, you know, I think it would be interesting to sit down with someone like Aubrey, who was a very aggressive, uh, willing to take chances, uh, maybe uh, you know, kind of buck the trend type of uh, a leader uh, from a CEO perspective. It would be interesting to see and hear what he might do uh, faced in in today's circumstances for a lot of these companies. So I think Hill already said it. I think you should have those beers together and see how Abe Lincoln and Aubrey McClendon uh, <laughs> see what kind of questions they have for each other. Yeah. Sure. Right. Right. Guys, thanks so much for sharing your insights today. Um, and thank you to all of our listeners um, as well. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. Also, if you haven't checked us out on social media, please search for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.